This is Buffalo, What's Next? I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. And I'm Dave Deboat. If ever there was an issue that demands more discussion now, the racist massacre at Tops Friendly Markets on May 14th is um, it. You know, America has a long, deep, rich history of racism brutalizing black communities. But where does it go from here? What does our community need? We must work and teach our children. What issues just aren't being addressed? As long as we keep doing the same thing, we're just sitting ducks for the next mass shoot. That's all you can say. This is a new program. Every weekday, we'll set aside this hour to hear from the community about issues that can no longer be held back. We need to make a concerted effort in our nation, in our institutions, and yes, in our family. Our first guest on Buffalo What's Next this morning is author Natalie Bazil. Her first novel, Queen Sugar, caught the attention of Oprah Winfrey and producer Ava DuVernay, who turned it into a TV series that just finished its sixth season on the OWN Network. Here in Western New York, under the auspices of the Western New York Land Conservancy, Bazil will hold an online session for the Conservancy tonight at 7. Yesterday... She was a guest at a gathering at the Buffalo Go Green Urban Farm at Glenwood and DuPont, about two blocks from the site of the May 14th massacre at the Jefferson Avenue Tops. That's where my conversation with Natalie Bazil took place. We talked about her nonfiction work, We Are Each Other's Harvest, celebrating African-American farmers' land and legacy. A main theme we addressed, black-owned farms declined in the United States by 98% during the 20th century. Now... Less than half of 1% of America is cultivated by black farmers. And your book gets into it a lot from a lot of different angles, but as you see it, what has that meant for black Americans to lose that amount of land ownership, of, uh, of the uh, connection to the farmland? Yeah. Well, you know, it's really had devastating effects because if you think about what land represents in this country, land represents... Uh, an opportunity for citizenship. It represents an opportunity to vote. It, it represents an opportunity to amass wealth and then pass that wealth down to future generations. And black people's um, lack of land ownership, really through systematic and structural uh, strategies deployed on behalf of, of the U.S. government in many cases, has really contributed to a lot of the challenges that our community faces today because we don't have that uh, generational wealth to pass on. And it explains why um, black people's uh, personal wealth in our community is less than half of what it is in in other communities and white communities. There's a statistic that I read uh, that came out in 2017 that said that if we continue on this path, by the year, I think it was 2030, the average net uh, wealth for black people will be zero. And that's an alarming thought, you know, to think that in the black community, we will have no wealth if we continue on this path. And so that's another reason why I wanted to write this book 
was to try to wrap my arms around this constellation of questions about how farming and agriculture and land ownership and land stewardship in the past, moving through to the present, will have a tremendous impact on black people moving forward. So it's not just something that's an abstract historical idea. This is something that is impacting us today and will continue to have effects in our community going forward. One of the chapters in the book, um, a a real exceptional piece of uh, journalism is is done in there. Taking a look, it's called The Last Plantation, the USDA's Racist Operating System. Pete Daniel, the author. We should mention this book is more of an anthology, I guess, of of sorts. It's probably the better way to describe it. But his, this particular piece of work is fascinating because it is so well documented and obviously we could probably sit here and just go back and forth about this for a while but I want to try to get home the point about this that this was a situation that was started on a federal level that allowed local county agents to make a lot of decisions about land allocation crop allocation and federal funding allocation and blacks lost out significantly in this. And, it, and to me, it's, it shows, I guess, on one side, maybe an, a national plan that had good intentions, maybe. We can argue that. But being allowed to filter down ended up in hands of people who did not have any interest in black farmers and perhaps maybe had negative interest in them. Yes, absolutely. And, and this is, you know... If you remember the class action lawsuit, Pickford versus Glickman, uh, where uh, Timothy Pickford was the named plaintiff in this class action lawsuit that black farmers brought uh, against the U.S. government um, in the late 80s, early 90s. And what that class action lawsuit forced the U.S. government to acknowledge was that, yes, the USDA, which is uh, a government agency designed ultimately to help the American farmer, that same agency deployed strategies over hundreds, you know, a hundred years, over a hundred years, to systematically disenfranchise black farmers and black landowners. How did they do that? Um, As you said, those agents on the local level who had control of those federal funds made all of the decisions about whose applications, whose loan applications for their farms were approved, whose land was seized, whose land was uh, had an opportunity to be purchased. And so the reason that, that that is such a... The reason why the USDA is really accountable and has done so much to undercut black land ownership in this country is this is an example of a government institution, a government organization that has over the centuries done a lot to disenfranchise the very people who it was meant to help. And so when we talk about, when we look at black communities today, right, and we think about all of the ways that those communities are suffering It's not something that has just happened in a vacuum. These communities today are suffering from systems and structures that have been deployed against them for generations, right? And you think about 
the USDA, then you think about things like redlining. I mean, it's a whole constellation of factors that have um, disenfranchised these communities for for generations. So these, the, the way black communities often are today is not something that just has happened, right? There's a whole historical legacy that explains why these communities are, are facing the challenges that they are today. And just to follow that and reiterate the point, it's something that develops on the federal level but is also allowed to trickle down to the local level. At a local yes. level as well. Yes. Um, you did touch upon this, but it was interesting to, to mention that when Africans did come to mm-hmm. North America, they came with agricultural knowledge that landowners Absolutely. Have. That's right. That's right. And so when you look at who were the people along the west coast of Africa who were enslaved, they were people who had that agricultural expertise. They knew how to grow rice. They knew how to grow um, cotton. They knew how to grow indigo, right? And these are some of the very first plants that were uh, imported and brought to the colonies, right? If you look at a state like South Carolina, where their main commodity was rice production, well, the people who were working in the fields were Africans from a region where rice was part of their staple. That was a staple in their community. They knew how to grow it, and they brought that wisdom and that, that expertise when they were enslaved and recreated that in along the South Carolina coast, for, as an example. Um, a little more about the book in the sense that the way it's, it's pieced together. It's, uh, it, it's an interesting kind of combination because the articles, the essays are... Some are very long, as I, I talked about one already, very detailed, very well-sourced. And then it has, has a, a coffee table book essence to it with a lot of uh, nice photos and, uh, um, and quotations yes. and poetry. We've got Barack Obama in there, Booker T. Washington, uh, Toni Morrison, just to name a, a, a few. What about the construction of the book in that regard? Uh, talk about your intent with that. Sure. So when I was working on We Are Each Other's Harvest... What I really wanted to do, because I, I, I really think of myself more as a, as a writer and a storyteller, not necessarily a historian. And so in creating this book, I wanted to really position myself as a curator, somebody who could take a step back and assemble a chorus of voices to tell this story about black people and the land. And I know that I'm inspired by a whole range of disciplines. I love art. I love music. I love poetry. I love film. And so I wanted this book to be a dynamic reading experience so that even if you don't know anything about farming or land ownership, you can dip in and out of this book at any point and really hear the voices of the farmers. And you can, so there are first person narratives. There are poems from some of, you know, our best African-American poets, Lucille Clifton, Ross Gay, Elizabeth Alexander, um, Kevin Young, who really, in their own work, talk in some way about, in a celebratory way, about what it means to be connected to the land. So even the poems, they're not necessarily about farming, they're not necessarily about um, about land, but somehow they capture the spirit 
and the experience of of and and they are celebratory in nature and they all kind of are in conversation with each other. So I really wanted the book to be almost like uh, a kaleidoscope or a, a, or a scrapbook of voices and stories and narratives and poems so that the reader would feel what I feel when I think about this issue, which is tremendous joy and pride and uh, a real sense of celebration, even as we are looking in, in some cases at some difficult truths. Then it brings me to another part, because you, you've talked about the, a couple of different elements there, but possibility. Yes. And that's kind of what I think brings you here. Yes. We're here sitting in an urban garden, uh, a, a pretty extensive one, as a matter of fact. What are we looking at here? I think those are leeks, maybe? Uh, could be. Uh, right, right. Onions, I think. Onions, there onion. we go. What is this? Yeah. Dylan oh, it could be Dylan. That's remember. right, yeah. Yes. Yeah, there's onions over there. Yeah. yeah, well, it shows you. They have a couple of us. Maybe you could brush up on our farming a little bit. I know this is lettuce on this side, We do know so, that much. Right. But uh, a possibility. So this is something that is being done here in one of the, it's, you know, the most impoverished neighborhood in the city. It's a segregated part of the city. But what do you see when you kind of put all those factors together and then you see what is here and not really a great growing climate mm -hmm. to add to it? What, what do you see? What do you feel? Well, you know, when I look around at what Allison has done here, I see um, a tremendous amount of hope and, and optimism and resilience. I think, you know, that's one of the things that I always, I, I always draw a tremendous amount of inspiration from farmers, urban farmers, rural farmers. It really doesn't matter to me because in order to farm, you have to have vision and you have to have hope and you have to be inspired. You have to have faith, really, that you can really make something out of nothing. And I know that I feel that as a writer, you know, when I face the blank page and I have to think about, okay, how am I going to start this story? There's a tremendous amount of, of faith and inspiration that I have to have about my own work. And I see that in farming. And I think that that's the thing that has always connected me and made me feel this deep connection with the people who do this, this work. And so when I look around at this urban garden, and I see, you know, all of these boxes where, you know, plants are flourishing. And knowing what Allison is doing here to feed this community, I draw tremendous inspiration. And, I, and I'm learning about the history of Buffalo um, and, of course, the tragedy that happened recently at, at Topps Market. But when I look around here, I see um, people who are invested in this community, who um, have a tremendous amount of resourcefulness and resilience and determination. And that, that's what I see. And that's what um, I think is just so wonderful about what, what these people are doing here. Your uh, visit to Buffalo was scheduled before May 14th, but on May 14th, just it's literally two blocks from where we sit right now. Um, Ten black people were shot to death. Three others were left wounded. Um, as you were kind of contemplating coming here and knowing that, you know, what were some of your thoughts and feelings? Well, I think I feel, I think I felt the same shock and, and outrage and heartbreak 
that uh, I know that this community felt and that a lot of people around the nation felt. Um, it's a devastating thing that happened here, and I know that this community is still, you know, mourning and, and grieving, but I also see the way that these this community has pulled together, and that's really why I'm here. It's to really honor and celebrate the work that they're doing and to try to um, do what I can, add my voice to uh, these people who are showing up every day, you know, who continue to be committed to helping their friends and neighbors, you know, and that's what, again, that's what I draw inspiration from. So if I can add my voice in some small way uh, to the work that these folks are doing, I'm happy to do that. Uh, speaking of drawing inspiration, we're going to ch change direction just a little bit here for a minute. Reading about in your, I believe it's in your forward about putting together Queen Sugar and how long it took you to make that novel happen and how you thought you had it done after uh, maybe a decade and, and then there were more rewrites to come. Uh, I, I really want to hear about what you, your journey on that, because it's, you know, we've got a lot of listeners who I'm sure everybody thinks they have a novel in them, don't they? Um, but what it took to bring that to fruition for you, uh, it really is a fascinating story in itself. Thank you. Uh, so Queen Sugar was my first novel, and it took uh, 11 years for me to write that book. Because I had to figure out what the story was, I had to figure out how fiction worked, I had to figure out how to write a novel, um, I had to get into the lives and that world of South Louisiana, which, were, which required a lot of research on my part. I spent a lot of time in Louisiana uh, in those sugarcane fields and in those sugarcane mills, you know, really absorbing the culture because what I wanted to do in that book, uh, which I think is what every author wants to do, you know, when we sit down to write, we really are trying to build a whole world, a world that the reader will hopefully fall headfirst into and be absolutely captivated by. And, and that takes work and it takes patience and it takes uh, more determination than I you know, would have thought when I started. Um, but it really was a labor of love. And in those 11 years, I really wanted to write a story that, again, told the story that we had not heard before about black people's connection to the land. You know, oftentimes when we think about the American farmer, we think about, you know, as I did for many years, you know, the American farmer is a middle-aged white guy, right? right? American is, Gothic, right? Exactly, right. exactly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, growing up, I remember the Farm Aid concerts with Willie Nelson and all that. And so, you know, part of what I was trying to do with Queen Sugar was to say, wait a minute, you know, Black and brown people, indigenous people, have been part of this story since the beginning. And I wanted to tell the story about a black farming family because that's part of African-American history, right? It's part of, you can ask any number, any black family, and chances are they will tell you that somewhere, somehow, someone in their past had a connection to the land. They maybe had farms or they had land in their families. And we, had, we tend to have forgotten that. And so in writing Queen Sugar, I wanted to tell a beautiful story. 
I wanted to tell a story about uh, a family, you know, with all of the family dynamics and the toil and the trauma and all that. And I think I did that. And then certainly when the book was optioned by Oprah Winfrey and Ava DuVernay and made into this television series, you know, that, again, reached a a whole other audience, you know. And it really, I I think, um, inspired conversation, you know, about what it means to have your hands in the soil and what it means to farm and what it means to be part of that family and and to really to receive and embrace and celebrate this rich legacy that we have. So, you know, that's what Queen Sugar did and continues to do. I know that they're in their uh, seventh and final season. They're actually in production right now Mm -hmm. in New Orleans. And, uh, you know, I just I'm just trying to write books about um, people and find stories that we don't often think about but that are part of our history and part of our story. And then finally, do you have a message for the, specifically the black community of Buffalo right now? Just based on the people I've met since I've been here and the people I look forward to meeting tomorrow, you know, there is a lot of wisdom here. There is a, a lot of love, a lot of love and a real commitment to, um, moving forward together and you know I've been hearing about some of the obstacles I've been learning a little bit about you know the city's history and and all of the ways that uh, it has been intentionally segregated Um, like so many American cities you know I'm from the west coast I live right across the the bay from Oakland that had a similar experience and so I know what that's like but I also know that within this community. There are people here who are devoted and committed and uh, who really see the best in their neighbors and who really seem to be devoting their lives to making Buffalo a place that people want to live and where people can thrive and where people feel a sense of hope and possibility. So um, I just want to say from, you know, somebody who's watching from the other coast, um, you know, you will not be forgotten. You know, people, you are on people's minds. And um, there are people out there like me and others who really hope that this community can uh, come together can, or can stay together, Right. And, uh, and move forward, you know, towards a day where I think things will hopefully be better. We've been talking about uh, We Are Each Other's Harvest, celebrating African-American farmers' land and legacy. The author, Natalie Bazil. Natalie, thanks very much for joining us on Buffalo What's Next. You're very welcome. Thanks for inviting me. Natalie Bazil with me Monday afternoon at the Buffalo Go Green Urban Farm. Natalie will hold an online session with the Western New York Land Conservancy tonight at 7. This is Buffalo What's next? Sometimes we miss our morning alarm, then we miss our morning news, and the whole day is off. That's when you can listen to the WBFO Brief Podcast to catch up on the day's news and get back on track. Find it every weekday wherever you get your podcasts, and then like and subscribe so you never miss the award-winning journalism of WBFO's news team. 
This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. We're talking about food today on Buffalo What's Next, and there was plenty of food at Juneteenth on Saturday at Martin Luther King Park. The smells of seafood brought me to a stand with shrimp, crawfish, and a lot more, and also had an incredibly long line, so no time to wait. We moved on and found another booth, this one run by the members of the Janetta R. Cole Ambets Post 24. They had a book library. And we're handing out free books by black authors. One of their members, Jerry Bowman, chatted about a number of topics with me, including his time serving in Vietnam. The Tet Offensive, and I got back home in October of 1968. So that's why I'm 75 now. And so you you got out of uh, the service right away? Uh, Yeah, I got out of service uh, seven months later in uh, 19 August of 69. Okay. And then I went straight to UB, right oh, up there. Yeah, yeah. I got out on Thursday and Monday morning. I was a freshman. Nice. Yeah, so I started all over. Again. Nice. Yeah. So, um, what, uh, what's your neighborhood? Uh, I, I live in the University District of uh, Kensington, out of the Kensington Bailey area. Uh, um, been there for 22 years. You know. What's not where you grew up, though? Oh, I grew up downtown. I grew up in the Jefferson Projects. Okay. Yeah, I went to East High School over there. And I graduated in 1966 and went right into the service. 66. 66. Played football and baseball for East. Uh, What about um, Juneteenth? Juneteenth. What does it mean to you? Uh, It's excellent. I've been to every Juneteenth they've had since it started on Jefferson. Yeah, I've been to every one. I'm thinking they moved here uh, to, to, I think, in 76 or something or 96. I've not forgot when they moved here uh, to the park. But it was because we needed more room. And and I think it's always been, you know, a good thing. It brings the, the community together. And this, and especially now, since all the tragedies that we've had, so this is this is good. So what Juneteenth means to me is that it's a chance to see who's still alive, because I go around looking for old friends, and some of them aren't here anymore. So, and, and, and all the people, and, I, and all the people were here, and a mixture of people was good, you know, because that brings Buffalo back, you know, a little bit of unity back together. I'm not going to say all of it, but it's a, it's a good thing. So I think it's positive, and I think they, you know, uh, the only thing that knocked us out the box was that COVID. When, when the COVID came down, you know, but now it's good. So it's a family affair. There's our our commander of the post is right there, and all and my sister and my cousins and all of them. So we do books, and we do a lot of other events too. So this this is just one thing. Um, what about? Uh like you mentioned, you did mention the shootings, which it's just all—it's over a month now since yeah. uh, since then. And um, you know, what are you hearing from people? What are what are kind of you know their their well, thoughts people, about it? People were saddened by that. I tell people not to be afraid. Uh, what it kind of showed, we got caught. You know, we got caught with our pants down. Said so we have to black people the, have to be more vigilant about what's happening. Keep your head on the swivel. And, and I'm thinking that in itself has brought people together 
and that they're more observant now. And I think this will bring about unity in the community, hopefully. It takes tragedy sometimes to do that, but it'd be, that's, that's what happened. And the people are still, but people are saying, because everybody that got killed, somebody knew. You know, because Buffalo's only so big. And Jefferson, you know, is the center of the black community. And a lot of people are hurt by what happened. You know, so, you know. Did you know one of the people? That got yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, uh, the, 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 the one girl went to East, and I'm a cat. Cat Massey. Uh, Massey, yeah. She went to East High School. She was about a couple of years behind me at East. A little younger than you. Yeah, she was 72. I'm going to be 75 next month. But I think the, the average age of the victims yeah. are up right around that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, people that go shopping. And it was just a happenstance that people had, no, you know, I stopped there sometime, you know. And um, it was one of those things. But I think it was a wake-up call for the community, you know, be vigilant. And that's another call for, you know, uh, if you're going to police our community, you know, keep the police must be vigilant, too, because we can't just let people walk up and kill people, you know, but they've done that. Do you think they've been more vigilant? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, it's sorry. Are you seeing more presence in your neighborhood? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, you know, and I'm thinking people are paying more attention, and that's what we must do. Pay attention. Yeah, pay, pay, yeah, pay attention. Very good. Because if you don't pay attention, you get shot. You know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what about that, you know, like when it comes to the tops, should it reopen? Should they rebuild a new one? What? Well, I mean, it'll take too long. To rebuild another one, uh, I'm thinking they should build more than one tops in the neighborhood. They got more than one tops in the other neighborhoods, so build another one. And what about people like Wegmans? <laughs> Ask them, you want to come in? And uh, uh, they, But I, I'm thinking if they open at the end of July, it's needed. But they need to, if they're going to do it, they need to expand it some. Because uh, it's, it's awful small. It was a small place. And what about, obviously it was a racial attack. Sure. We're talking about, you know, white supremacy. They need to attack that. That's the thing. You know, white supremacy. And, and, and there's 836 hate groups that they know of in America and they're talking about guns, you know. We shouldn't have any guns. I mean, people that need guns going to get them anyway. I mean, what, you know, we got a lot of people that get illegal guns. You can make guns. And how about people that get guns and sell them? That's a business in itself. So just to have gun control and then people will start talking about the Second Amendment. We have the right to carry a gun. And that's not all the way true. The Second Amendment was put in place... Make sure that I didn't get a gun. And in an event that in the event that I did have a gun, the people that can carry guns would shoot me. They were nothing but uh, people that used to slay, uh, uh, chase runaway slaves. That's all that's about, you know. And so we shouldn't be fooled by any of that. Mm. Happy Juneteenth. Thank you. Appreciate thanks, it. Thanks for time, Jerry. Mm-hmm. That was my conversation at Juneteenth on Saturday with Buffalo resident Jerry Bowman, who served in Vietnam and is a member of the Janetta R. Cole Ambets post number 24. We have more ahead on Buffalo. What's next? Sponsorship of WBFO's Women's News Desk is provided by Catholic Health, the right way to care. You're listening to Buffalo. What's next? There are several ways for you to join the conversation. Send us a message now on Twitter at WBFO. Email us at news at WBFO.org. 
or just press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app and leave a comment we can use on the air. We're here for you. This is Buffalo What's Next. And this is Dave Debo. We are continuing our discussion today about feeding the community and some of the different ways they can do that with tops, without tops, with a food desert in that community. Let's pick up on a few of the ideas that uh, Jay raised with author Natalie Bazile. Allison Dahoney is with us now from Buffalo Go Green. She is one of those urban farmers that, that a lot of people say is so desperately needed, not only to feed the community, but also obviously to promote some industry and jobs in an urban setting, to talk about health care, to talk about access to healthy food. Allison's here to do all of that. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with a little bit of what you've got going and the project as it is and the project as you envision it. Buffalo Go Green. We have vacant lots in the city. You farm on some of them, right? Yes. We have food deserts in the city. People could eat more produce. It would be healthy. It would be a good thing, especially if there is a food desert, not the kind of access that we've been talking about uh, all, all, all the earlier parts of this hour. With with such synergy, with vacant lots and with a food desert, isn't it automatic that a farm like yours should be able to thrive? You've talked before we went on air about some of the obstacles. Why is this process hard to uh, hard to implement? Well, um, we are thriving, and because we are thriving, we need access to more land. And uh, we got a very good education from the wonderful author, Natalie Bazile, about the history of black people, black farmers, mm. and land access in this country. And unfortunately, uh, we at Buffalo Go Green are struggling with that same challenge today in 2022. What's the challenge? <clears throat> so... Our project that we is the large vision for our organization, which is a holistic wellness and agricultural education campus on Buffalo's east side, the first of its kind. In the nation. In the nation. And that we know of. Okay. <laughs> that right. we know of. And, and because it's so innovative, this project has recently been accepted into the Harvard Law School uh, Agri Agricultural Epidemiology Pilot Program. There will be about six in the nation. But the challenges are that uh, in 2018, I was able to purchase six vacant city lots on a street uh, that crosses with East Ferry, Zenner. And I'm currently and have been trying for almost three years now to purchase seven additional lots. Adjacent Contiguous All lots. contiguous and across the street, yes, to create one large campus with a wellness center and a greenhouse, hydroponic, and soil growing space to, in addition to um, serve our current client base with our fruits and vegetables prescription programs and our fresh fruits into pantries. And uh, Governor Hochul signed Nourish New York into law, which runs through food banks across the state. And the requirement of Nourish New York is that those food banks source from local, um, uh, preferably um, minority-led uh, 
produce growers, farmers. And so we do supply to Nourish New York, and we did that largely during COVID. And that's on these existing six lots you're growing now? On the now. existing, yes. What do you grow? So we grow lots of leafy greens, collard greens, mustard, turnip greens, peppers, tomatoes, um, lettuce, several types of lettuce, carrots, celery, um, what else? Cucumbers. Uh, so we grow a lot of all the greens that you could ever want. Um, and what we also do is we support our rural farmers because we have some beautiful um, fruit farmers that uh, grow in our rural areas. Uh, we are working with Cornell Cooperative Extension to start to grow fruit in the city, but we need those additional lots for mm. that. And so it's been a battle. We have been working with the Office of Strategic Planning for almost three years now, um, trying to explain to them that in that zip code that we want to go into, the 14211, um, the poverty rate is 31 percent. Uh, the households that receive SNAP benefits, otherwise known as food stamps, is 43.2 percent. And the unemployment rate is 14.1%. And this wellness center is a job creator. Um, and so we're not only going to take a food apartheid neighborhood and change it, we will also be supplying um, food all throughout the city through our various programs. And we'll make a beautiful space, just like the current beautiful space we've made at the corner of Glenwood and DuPont. And some people would also argue, Natalie Bazile in the interview before, that um, there isn't necessarily a heritage of urban farming, but that doesn't mean that, that people couldn't do that. That in the past, historically, they've been discouraged from doing that. You could create farming jobs here, too, correct? Absolutely. We currently have a staff of five, and we do bring on part-time folks during the season. Um, so we are hiring people. We... Um, we get so much recognition, but the one place that we don't get recognition and support is from the Office of Strategic Planning. Why do you think that is? You know, I, I don't know. I've asked. I would even be happy if someone called me from a restricted number and said, go away. We're not going to do this because then I would have an answer. And our board is working tirelessly and saying we need an either give us a hard no and we'll look elsewhere. We have the support of our of our council member in that district. Uh, Councilman Mitch Nowakowski has been extremely supportive of this project. We were in his office on June 6th talking about, you know, here's my, you see my timeline, my three-page timeline that outlines everything that I've been through since. Would, would, would this wear, wear TV? She has a stack here in front of me <laughs> of uh, documents and plans that is probably about four inches thick. <laughs> So it's not like this is just something doodled on the back of a napkin. Absolutely. And so, um, you know, when we were in Councilman Nowakowski's office, he was not even aware that the sale of these lots had been cleared through the land use department. So that's the process. It has to go to land use. They do whatever they do. And then if it's recommended for sale, the file goes to the councilman for that district. So when I told him that we had been cleared through land use, he said he, he, I you know, haven't seen it exactly. Yet. So 
Again, he called the Office of Strategic Planning and got some, you know, excuse as to why he didn't get it. And so here we are again. It's just excuse after excuse. And like I said, just just tell me, what is the problem? Let, let me let me play devil's advocate or at sure. least maybe city's advocate <laughs> um, in this particular case. There are permits. There is a structure. There is a bureaucracy. It isn't necessarily that they are picking on an underserved population here. They are just subjecting you to a pre-existing process that might not be flexible, that might not be encouraging in a community where you need to serve the underserved. You, is that an argument you would accept? So um, the, the thing is, I don't know. And, you know, I, I, I know that the city has this big support black business program, and I don't see that. Because I have been, first of all, a lot of people know my work. The Common Council has been extremely supportive of my work. There is not a single councilman that I deal with that I don't call that office and ask for either an appointment or something. The answer has always been hands down, yes, Allison. What do you need? So it's not that. It's not that. But which, the, which goes to, I guess, my argument in their defense. It's a it's a process thing, not a lack of will. No, I don't know. Again, so if we've given you all the documents that you've requested and the file remains stagnant. And one of the things one of their arguments is um, we want to make sure that this pro- project is going to come to fruition. OK, absolutely. I totally agree. What can we there, – there, none of us has a crystal ball. There are several projects in this city that have not come to fruition. We've all watched the Statler Tower go through whatever it went through. Mm. And those are big money players. So you can't say, well, you may not have the money because we've had projects with big money players and they have not come to fruition. They have not served this community. They have not provided the jobs that they promised they would get. So I don't subscribe to that argument. So let's not assume racism where racism doesn't exist, but let's look at it in the context of underserved communities. This is an idea that could help an underserved community, but the current system, for whatever reasons, is structured in a way where it is not automatic or where it is not easy. Right. Can you then therefore, and I'm I'm obviously saying this rhetorically, can you argue that there needs to be more flexibility for the sake of serving underserved communities? Absolutely. Because the paperwork and the model for acquiring lots and building buildings and projects being um, accepted is a model for big developers. So if you care about the east side... If you care about food access and if you care about health disparities, which Erie County is one of the sickest counties in the state, and it it remains that way on a continuous basis. If you care about black business and if you care about a change in the city, then you would at least entertain this project and not be unprofessional with not returning phone calls and responding to emails, not be disrespectful in the discord and the way that we communicate, because I'm going to tell you what, if I behave that way, I would be fired. I wouldn't have a business. And it's our taxpayers that pay those salaries. So at least be professional. 
and have the the decency to be transparent and tell us at Buffalo Go Green what the problem is. Let's broaden the discussion beyond Buffalo Go Green. How hard is it for people to invest in Buffalo's east side? I don't think it's hard at all. You just have to be uh, creative and you have to want it and you have to care about the people there. Because, but, so it's not hard, uh, generally speaking, but when you get to folks who that's not their interest, it can become almost impossible. Tell me what you mean when you say that, because... I don't want to just have an implication on the table. I need you to be precise. So um, I'm still, excuse me, still wondering why we're not getting transparency. If, in fact, there was another project for this space, if, in fact, there's something bigger and better for this space, I'm okay with it. I can go to plan B. But at least let us know, have the decency to treat us with some dignity and respect and not tie us to the chains of slavery and Jim Crow and you can't have land and you can't be a leader and you can't provide for what I know my people need. At least have the dignity to move us out of that time frame and talk to us about what's really going. I'm a big girl. I can take it. You can tell me no. It's okay. But when you don't give me the respect, that's when I have a problem. Allison Dahoney is here. She's a member of the Black Farmers United New York State. She's a chair of the Food Policy Council of Buffalo and Erie County, a member of the Black Farmer Fund. She's behind Buffalo Go Green. They have a project pending in the city, six lots already that they're farming on. You want to add three Seven more, more. Seven more and develop a community center, a health center, an urban farm, all of these different things coming together uh, for, for the needs of the community, job training, health, produce, the kind of things we've been talking about for for the majority of this hour. Let's let's delve into health. Why does this community need uh, this sort of thing for the sake of health? So um, I, I, I could buy my produce and my greens at Tops, right? Sure. So one of our our beloved partners, Community Health Centers of Buffalo and Dr. Ansari, um, when I wanted to bring a fruits and vegetables prescription program to the city, I went all around trying to get Uh, folks to... Let me dissect your words there. Prescription program. What do you mean? Describe this. So um, if your doctor knows that you're struggling with hypertension, diabetes, cardiovascular issues, or any of those comorbidities, they can say, here's a script... You don't have to pay. The health center will underwrite the cost. You go on site to our market and And get healthy food instead of ding dongs and potato chips. Exactly. And I like my ding dongs. (laughs) (laughs) Most of us do. And the produce that we are providing our community chemical pesticide free, locally grown. We don't plant in the ground. Um, we buy our seeds out of state, no genetically modified seeds. The travel, our produce is not packed in ice, so it's not depleting the nutrient content mm. in each crop. 
Our travel, we travel between 10 and 20 minutes for our furthest customer. So that's our prescription program. So we're partnering with the Community Health Centers of Buffalo because Dr. Ansari believes in food as medicine. So you have to start there. Okay. And, then, and she will be coming up on this program, by the way, next week's oh, point. So. wonderful. And so um, it, we're going into our fifth year. So what we will do at the Wellness Center is design programs that do not duplicate clinical services but are more on the holistic side and can complement those clinical um, remedies that folks need to get better and to stay healthy. Because in that regard, food supply is part of the problem. Absolutely. And and in that 14221 neighborhood, there's, you know, a lot of fast food outlets and a lot of corner stores, but no healthy outlets. Mm. Expand the program beyond the prescription concept. Uh, would you just put stands out? Would you sell to tops? How? What's your distribution? So yes, we would love to sell to tops, and a few grocery outlets have approached us about that since five fourteen. Um, but of course, we need to scale, so mm. we would need more land for that. And your distribution would be primarily through that community. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Bodegas, small stores, anyone? So, no, not okay. really bodegas. Tell me more. So, um, it, that is not a model that really works. We tried that a couple of years ago. It doesn't, that's just not a model that works. It's it's more effective for us to work with, um, like, the Urban League Food Pantry okay. or Nourish New York or health centers. Um, is it a volume thing? Uh, no, not really. Not really. Just a model that doesn't, you know, um, corner stores are there for their their base is it's profit. You know what I mean? And so if if I only want to sell pens and you only want to sell pencils for us to come together, we're not really aligned. You know, there's not an alignment there. Wellness is not the overarching mission. They'd rather sell the potato chips and the ding dongs. Because the profit margin on a potato Absolutely. chip is, okay, all right. You know, so so why go where you know there's no alignment? You know, it's not necessary. Right. There's so many other places to, yeah. In the remaining minutes or so here, let's talk about the jobs component. Um, Natalie, in the earlier segment, addressed it. Uh, historically, I think we can say that, that there isn't necessarily a tradition of black farmers. There could be. There should be, maybe you would argue. Um are there jobs to be had here in more than the health center, maybe in more of the greenhouse? But um, forgive me, I, I picture, and, and I know this is stereotyping, and it helps at least illustrate the argument, so bear with me. Um, I picture uh, a, a young kid who wants his way out of the city, who wants a prosperous career, not thinking of farming first. Absolutely. And I totally understand why. So there's a place for those folks because farming is, is you know, it's moving out of that antiquated space. And so you could develop drones. Their farmers are looking for ways to identify disease and issues with their crops early on so that the remedies can be taken quickly so you don't lose mass amounts of crop. You could 
create drones, you can create irrigation systems, you can go into ag finance. There are so many career fields attached to agriculture and food systems. Um, The work is beautiful work. And I understand if everybody doesn't want to toil in the soil, and that's fine, but there are other avenues. And that's what we would be teaching at our Agricultural Education Center. You know, that is something we heard at Juneteenth. Uh, Jamie Swigert was there. She had an agricultural booth in Martin Luther King Park, and she said that jobs and better access to it are definitely part of the equation. The industry of agriculture is a billion-dollar industry, but then when you look at the um, ratio of black folks who are a part of the industry, right now when you think look at farmers, we're less than 1% of the farm industry. When farming was essentially a black industry starting out with slavery, but we were doing it unpaid. And then there was a movement after um, freedom happened where slaves, former slaves, didn't want their children in the soil because it was connected to such trauma. So there's a post-traumatic stress that's associated. And then she also argues that uh, some of the technology involved in farming Blacks weren't allowed patents. She argues that access to jobs in general was an issue. All of this pulled together makes for uh, a, a current mindset where farming is not something people would think of as a job, certainly not in the city, but in a general sense. Right. And um, we partner with some with a, a, a Providence Farm Collective and If folks are interested in rural farming, we have those connections. But even if you don't, even if you try this and you move to another space, the um, the skill set that you acquire, um, the connections that you make, um, the urban planners that are now so interested in farm work and design and how urban agriculture fits into urban spaces, the list goes on and on and on. You can be um, become an attorney that works in environmental justice, like but but having that knowledge and having a space where we can develop that uh, that base of information at the agricultural education center is what we want to do for the community. I, I think we can certainly argue that farming is not just a guy with a plow. Absolutely. Cornell University has built an entire uh, institution around the science of it all. Uh, the horticulture of it all. Uh, you spoke earlier about the, the use of or the lack of uh, use of pesticides. A lot of that involves scientific fields. Absolutely. Things that are more, again, than just a guy with a plow. Absolutely. And we work very closely with Cornell, and we've been able to give suggestions of things that we need. We have a vegetable specialist. Um She's gone for, going for her master's degree. These are heavily scientific, highly educated individuals working in this field. In a neighborhood where you need the jobs. Absolutely. Okay. So we've covered the health. We need the health. We need the produce. We need the jobs. More broadly speaking, in the remaining couple of minutes here, talk in a general sense about some of the things that we haven't covered. Broadly speaking, maybe not necessarily uh, with, with your project in mind, but broadly speaking, what does the community need right now? Broadly speaking, um, this is another layer of trauma. And um, black folks, we we walk around every day um, with the effects of trauma. It's been proven that it can be in your DNA. And it's never 
addressed. You know, it's never we um, these the east side is looked at like, oh, I don't want to go there. I don't want to drive through there. I don't want to stop there. Yet people came from all over after the massacre and nothing happened. And they were on the east side for hours and hours. Um, so broadly speaking, there are so many things that lead to a neighborhood or a community being underserved. It's not just one thing. It's a culmination of systemic racism and systemic fear that, um, you know, there's not enough for everyone. And anyone who knows how the universe works, the universe doesn't work like that. The universe works that if you do well, there's a higher probability that I will do well. And for some reason, you know, folks who um, are are afraid of the browning of this country and white supremacists feel like if, you know, black people have a decent life, then they're not going to be able to have a decent life. And the universe just doesn't work that way. Generational trauma. Generational trauma. We all have it. And, and I would argue there have been lots of stories about how that affects white people as well. You, we saw it in some of the um, murders of husband on wife murder. And the first thing people do is blame a black man. And that takes away from the person who actually committed the crime. So if you want to commit a crime and have a higher probability of getting away with it, you know to blame a black person. And that affects white people and other races as well. So it's not just in a vacuum. Racism and uh, white supremacy affects us all. How do you combat that? Oh, you know, Dave, it's just we have to be raised with love and kindness. That's all there is. There's love and fear. And if you're not raised with love and kindness and you don't have that surrounding you, it's very difficult to combat that. But I also think in some ways maybe racial attitudes are a generational thing. Absolutely. My own children and my nieces and nephews have been exposed to far more black people than my mother who holds thoughts that are in league with what her generation thinks. Okay. I don't want to call her an outright racist, but she has more thoughts that would be in that box than the younger generation. Can we just wait for a couple more generations and this whole problem will go away, right? <laughs> and, and it's so interesting that you say that because I have girlfriends that we all had our children at the same I mean, same... That, that might solve some of it, but but obviously I'm trying right. to make a... No, but 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 we, they raised, we raised our children together and in their households... There was no room. It didn't matter. It wasn't a black or white thing. There was no room for talking about any other nationalities in a deplorable way. And so I see the product of those children today as adults and their wonderful, loving, kind human beings who don't subscribe to a lot of those thought processes. So that's where it starts. And then education, not saying that what that slavery didn't exist things like the holocaust didn't exist those are things that keep us tied to the white supremacist attitudes and the fear and not being able to see each other as equal and as human beings and treat each other with love and kindness and respect so that begins at the home absolutely all right very good allison as we close here uh, i'm sure it would benefit your organization if more people 
were aware of it and got involved with it, how can they reach out? So you can re- you can go to our website at buffalogogreen.org or you can email us at mrogers at buffalogogreen.org or dahoney at outlook.com. Okay, dahoney at outlook.com, buffalogogreen.com. Dot org. Dot All right, org. let's do that again. Buffalogogreen.org. Ellison, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. This is Buffalo's What's Next, and we will be back here tomorrow, of course, to continue the discussion about the community and what needs to happen after the tragic shootings on May 14th. This is WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown. Thanks for listening.